Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started tonight, let's have an opening prayer and have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the word, ready to... Uh, focus on what God the Holy Spirit has to teach us tonight. And as we get into this, tonight's going to be kind of an interesting night. I don't know how it's going to end up, but we're going to hit two or three different interesting uh, facets before we get through with our our study, so it should be a fun hour. So let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we are grateful that we can come together to fellowship around your word. We're thankful that we have your word because it is in your word that we find truth. Not just truth as there are other truths, but the ultimate and absolute truth that gives us the framework within which to understand and evaluate everything else that's going on in the world around us. And Father, in times, especially in unsettled times in which we live, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we study your word to give us guidance and direction to inform our thinking in the decisions we make and in the things that we do, that we may focus our time, our limited time and energy and that which counts for eternity. Father, we pray as we study tonight that we might again be impressed with your faithfulness to your word and how you have condescended to reveal yourself to us through the written words of Scripture and that you work in your relationships to us on the basis of these legal frameworks that you have established in your word called covenants and how important it is to understand that as we pray, as we worship, as we uh, walk with you. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things we study tonight and may we understand these things in a fresh way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to start off tonight with a little bit of a contemporary event. I know that many of you probably have already uh, looked at this particular uh, YouTube video, but I know that there's always someone or more than someone who haven't seen things like this. It's all new to them, or they they just haven't gotten to it. In fact, I got got so many emails of this particular YouTube that I didn't even look at. Finally, I said, well, I'm just going to have to break down and take the time to look at it because I just had not had time. Usually I'm, I'm out there at the forefront on these things. But I thought this would be a good exercise. Every now and then, it's good for a teacher to give the class a test. And usually when we come together, uh, I'm the one who does all the talking and everybody else keeps pretty quiet. But I thought, well, we'll just, we'll just play through this and give you a chance to point out some things and see if you're learning or developing any critical thinking skills. We've talked about worldview. We've talked about a lot of doctrine. But what do we see when we watch uh, something like this? And we have to understand something like this because it is truly represents the age. Now, why does this computer do this? You Mac people, why is it that when I shift to certain programs, it's... Um, it, it switches monitors on me and it tries to redo some things. It just gets, yeah, it's demons in the computer. Okay. All right. So this is the new church of Oprah. Oprah, for those of you who don't know, Oprah has not been, she claims to be a Christian, but that term is used loosely and wrongly by her. She has been a priestess of the New Age movement for at least 23 or 24 years. I was using quotes from her to show how 
the New Age mysticism had permeated the mainstream media when I was doing seminars on the New Age movement in the mid-80s. The New Age movement, even talking about it, is now somewhat passe because it truly has gone mainstream. If you don't know what the New Age movement is, that's basically where the age of Aquarius and if you get enough people who are, you know, the New Age movement is in some ways it's difficult to define because it's like trying to nail macrobiotic jello to the ceiling. It can mean whatever you want it to mean to whoever you're talking to. It has a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Hinduism, a little bit of Kabbalah, a little bit of self-help, just whatever you want to mix into it. And a few Bible verses ripped out of context, sprinkled in just to appeal to the mass numbers of Christians who really don't know anything about their Bible or know anything about doctrine. And the sad thing now is with this, and she's promoting this, book by this guy named, uh, was it Eckhart Tolle? And so many people just get sucked up into this, and she is so influential that people think that this is, this is really good. And we live in a world today where it's all about self. Everybody is so self-absorbed. It's all about realizing your own potential and being motivated to reach that potential. And you just see how all of this blends together and it's, it's elements of psychology, it's elements of self-help, it's elements of you know, different religious things all sprinkled in, and none of it is biblical, and you can just see how anti-biblical it is. So let's just walk through a couple of things, and I'll have a few comments and ask you some questions. Have you heard about the largest church in the world? The first service was March 3, 2008, with an attendance of over 300,000. The attendance is now over 2 million, and they conducted the first ever mass trance on March 17, 2008. What do they teach? Who you are requires no belief. Heaven is not a location, but refers to the inner realm of consciousness. The man on the cross is an archetypal image. He is every man and every woman. The leader's website teaches these lessons. Okay, let's just stop there. Let me back this up just a little bit. A mass trance. All over the world, people can, can interconnect through the Internet and have this, this mass trance. But look at March some, 3rd, some of these, these propositions that are uh, The attendance is forth. now over 2 million, and they conducted the first ever mass trance on March 17, 2008. What do they teach? That was three weeks Who ago. You are requires... Who you are requires no belief. What's wrong with that statement? No. That's a belief. Hello. <laughs> it, you know, this is the same problem you run, run into with postmodernism. It's just this self-contradictory propositions. But nobody cares about being logical. So their first statement refutes itself. You have to believe that who you are requires no belief. That is a faith statement. So it is self-contradictory. No belief. Heaven is not a location, but refers to the inner realm of consciousness. Heaven is what you have on the inside. Heaven is what you think. What was that old uh, line, you are what you eat? Heaven is what you think. So that means it's, it's they're, they're redu- what are they reducing heaven to? They're reducing it to self. What else are they doing? Heaven is what? It's your mental attitude. Heaven is your mental attitude. So is heaven eternal? No. Heaven's not a, not a place. There's no space-time there. So heaven is just a matter of your attitude and how you think. Now, think about where that, the implications of such a statement. If heaven is what you think, what is hell? Hell has also got to be what you think. And so if you're thinking the wrong things, you're violating other people's heaven. You know, this has interesting implications, but I think one of them is that if who you are requires no belief and heaven is what you think, then I think heaven really is not having any thoughts. I think that follows. The man on the cross is an archetypal image. He is every man and every woman. What does he mean by archetypal image? Are they saying that Jesus isn't historical? 
How do they know this? See, this should be the foundational question we should be asking, is how do you know this? Remember, the key issue in, in thinking about anything is how do you know truth? How do you know what's right? How do you know what's wrong? What's your ultimate position? Now, is this coming? What, what are the four ways in which we know something? Rationalism, empiricism, mysticism, and, and revelation. No, they all require faith. Revelation is, is God telling you, speaking to you, giving you information you couldn't know any other way. But all of them are based on faith. The problem with setting that up as, as empiricism, rationalism, or faith is you're juxtaposing faith to reason. That is a major problem because faith isn't irrational. It is rational, but it is, a, it is the use of reason under the authority of God's revelation. Now, what is their authority for these statements? Hmm? Themselves. And is it, is it rational or is it irrational? It's irrational. It's not based on principles of logic and reason. What did you say? Depends on who you ask. Depends on who you ask. It's mysticism. Yeah, well, <clears throat> we won't go there. <laughs> okay. The leader's website teaches these lessons. My mind is part of God's. I am very holy. What does this say about the nature of man? He's basically good. Man is good. There's no such thing as sin. And if you talk about sin, and you think of sin as an absolute condition uh, that man is in, you're evil. How negative. So we can't talk about, about sin because everybody is inherently good. Now, <clears throat> let's think about this a minute. You have Christianity, the Bible, that says there is no one good. There is none who does righteousness. That's in the Psalms quoted by Paul in <clears throat> Romans chapter 3. You also have Jeremiah saying the heart is deceitful above all things. Uh, deceitful and wicked above all things, who can know it? So the heart is deceitful. So you can't really go there for your truth base and mysticism. But if your mind is part of God's and <clears throat> your, who you are isn't a belief, then what does that say about God's mind? It's not very, it's not rational. Okay. But what, what worldview is this? Is this pantheism? Is this uh, theism? Is this um, atheism? Secular humanism? What, what's your overall worldview here? My mind is part of God's. It's pantheism. God is, is in everything and we are in God. What does that say about every human being, that they're part of God? We are, we are God. Yeah, it blurs a creator-creature distinction. It also, what happens in Genesis 3? What is the temptation that Eve succumbs to? If you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. So we, we've come back to this, man wants to be God. So my mind is part of God's, I am holy, basically saying that the cre creature is part of the creator, blurring that distinction, and man is, um, is divine. I am very holy. My holiness is my salvation. Where do they get the word salvation? Where does that come from? Are we going to let them use that word? No, you can't talk about salvation if you're not, if you're not dying, dead, or lost. Salvation implies that you're being saved from something. But if your mind is part of God's and you're already holy, what do you need? Yeah, exactly. What do you need to be saved from? <laughs> Very good, Morgan. You need to be saved from yourself. My salvation comes from me. So we save ourselves. And what, what, how do we save ourselves? It's, it's through thinking. So it ultimately comes down to mind control. And that's what comes out of so many of these New Age cults 
and they are cults, is that it's you, your thinking shapes reality, and your thinking, and if you think your thinking can shape reality, you think that you're God. This is the height of arrogance. Let me remember that there is no sin. No sin. Now, how, how, last night in History of Doctrine, we were studying about how the atonement becomes attacked down through the ages, and when the atonement is misunderstood, it's because sin is minimized. It's no longer a constitutional defect, man being born spiritually dead, but sin is simply a, a disease. Man just, just isn't that, doesn't do everything he could do, and so it changes the meaning of the atonement that instead of Christ dying for you, paying the penalty for your sin, uh, he's just giving you an example. He's saying, follow me, uh, motivate, and that reduces the gospel to something that's no better than just another motivational uh, feel-good speech. Do not make the pathetic error of, quote, clinging to the old rugged cross. Do not make the pathetic error of clinging to the old rugged cross. Uh, you know, that just, you don't even have to comment on that. That's pathetic, yes. Unquote. The only message of the crucifixion is that you can overcome the cross. So Jesus must have failed because he didn't overcome the cross. That's what that's saying. Jesus was a failure, but you can do better because you know you're God. Have you heard of this church or maybe its leader? Years ago, she denied Jesus is the only way. One of the mistakes that human beings make is believing that there is only one way to live That's and right. that we don't accept that there are diverse ways of being in the world, that there are millions of ways to be a and human being. Now, how do you know that, that there are millions of ways? How, how would you respond to that? Some, you're talking to somebody, you're talking to them on the bus, you're talking to them uh, over the lunch table at work or uh, wherever you are at the gym, and somebody says, you know, there's a million ways to God. How do you respond to, to that? Hmm? Uh, I think we've got to go more basic than that. I think, I think a good approach is to ask questions like, well, how do you know that? You know, how do you know that there's a million ways to God? And ultimately, when you do get around to talking about the Scripture, how would you show that, this, that, that it's consistent with the Bible that there's only one way? Well, you have John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. Is that the only place? Hmm? Yeah, okay, the ark. There's only one way to survive the judgment at the time of Noah, and that was to get on the ark. How many ways were there to get on the ark? One, one door. Okay, what are some other biblical examples that God always has one way? Hmm? Passover. There's only one way. If you applied the blood, you, the angel of death passed over the house, and the eldest son was not, his uh, life was not taken, but if you did not apply the blood, then the oldest son's life was taken. What's another example? Moses with the serpent. When everybody's dying, there's uh, because of the serpent bite, there was only one way to be uh, delivered, to be saved, and that was to look at the serpent. What's another example? Exodus? What? The Exodus. Well, in what sense? Right, only one way out of the land, follow Moses, only one way through the Red Sea. Okay, let's, let's stay in that whole Exodus event period. What's another example from that period that there's only one way? How many ways are, how many entrances are there to the tabernacle? Only one way. And how, what do you have to do in order to be able to go into the tabernacle? If you don't do it God's way, what happens? You die. You know, we saw that last week in, um, uh, <clears throat> in Leviticus, so with um, uh, Nadab and Abihu. What um, other examples of only one way in the Old Testament? Yeah, Tom. 
Only one set of plans. There's only yeah, only one way to survive. Build the ark my way. Don't get too, don't get too enthusiastic back there. <laughs> okay, let's keep going. And many ways, no, but many paths to what you call God. That and her path might be something else. And when she gets there, she might. Okay, what did you just hear? Hmm. A lie. <laughs> To what you call God. See, we're going to, wait a minute, where do we get our definition of, of deity here? What, where does this come from? I call it the light. But her loving and her kindness and her generosity, brings her, if it brings her to the same point that it brings you, it doesn't matter whether she called it God along the way or not. Now, I know this, I, I, I can just keep, I, I, it's, where do you get concepts of love and generosity and kindness? Without, yeah, with, without somehow stealing this from the Bible. Because these are not virtues that are developed in uh, other world religions. Now, by the time you get into Greek philosophy, they start developing some of these things. But in the early uh, Babylonian pantheistic religions, and some of the, this, this isn't there. Certainly not there in your Native American religions. Um, Moctezuma and the Aztecs weren't real loving to the other uh, Indians in South America, uh, <clears throat> they enjoyed sacrificing them to the gods, but that was that was not what we'd call love. I guess the danger that could be on that, I mean, it's, it sounds great on the onset, but if you really look at both sides, I there could possibly be just one way. What, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? You say there isn't only one way. Today, she has turned her millions of adoring fans over to New Age doctrine. Christians are letting this into their homes and are being deceived. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to week number three of our New Earth web class. And again, I um, thank you. Eckhart Tolle thanks you for joining us as we bring students and seekers. New Earth web class. What's, what, where does this come from, this idea we're bringing in a new earth? Well, if you know anything about New Age teaching, uh, back when they had the harmonic convergence, do you all remember that back in the 80s? And the New Age people would go to places like um, um, what, Sedona, Arizona, and Albuquerque, and Santa Fe, and Enchanted Rock out near Fredericksburg, and these places that have these mystical connections and they would gather there and if the idea was if enough people thought the right thoughts at the same time then they could their, their mental energy would move us into the next stage of the age of Aquarius and in a lot of new age teaching the idea was that that once we get to this point where there is enough critical mass of people thinking the same thoughts for peace, that's why you see these, I always like the bumper sticker that says, um, you know, imagine world peace, but it's, you know, think world peace. If enough people thought about world peace at the same time, then there's going to be this, this the next step would be this, this move, next step of evolution would be this movement into a uh, mental evolution and then all the people on the planet who haven't been willing to go into this next stage are going to be removed from the planet. You ever heard that? There were several major New Age thinkers who, who taught that back, back in the 80s. So it sounds like a good explanation for the rapture. All those people who just didn't want to move forward. So we become the bad guy because we believe there's only one way. And if there's one thing people who want to believe that their way will work, it's to tell them it's wrong and there's only one way. I mean, the anger and the resentment is just immeasurable. ...together to discuss our latest book club selection, Eckhart Tolle's A New We did something last week that was uh, unprecedented. You said it's never been done before on television where you just sit there in silence. I, I, and I thought a lot of people responded to the sense of connection from that. So you want to do that again? Yes. Let's do that again. Yes. Yes. Okay. So you're going to lead us in silence. And okay. simply become aware that you are breathing. 
air flows in and out and you feel yourself breathing. Air flows in and out of the body. In reading books such as Tolley's, I've really op it's really opened my eyes up to a new way of thinking, a new form of spirituality that doesn't always align with the teachings of Christian Christianity. So my question is to you, Oprah, how have you reconciled these spiritual teachings with your Christian belief? Does it ever align? That's the question. It's not that it doesn't always. If it does, it's just by chance. I it because I was able to open my mind about the, um, the absolute indescribable hugeness of that which we call God. Um, I took God out of the box because I grew up in the Baptist church and there were, you know, rules and, you know, belief systems and doctrine. And uh, God's in a box. Who made the box? God made the box. He told us who he was and what's right and what's wrong. So it goes to no absolutes. You can make God be whatever you want him to be. Um, I happen to be... Um, sitting in church in my late 20s, and I was going to this church where you had to get there at, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning or you couldn't get a seat, and a very uh, charismatic minister, and everybody was just, you know, into the sermon. And uh, this great uh, minister was preaching about how great God was and how omniscient and omnipresent and God is everything. And then he said, and the Lord thy God is a jealous God. And I was, you know, caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said jealous. And something struck me. Just, and I was like, uh, I think about 27 or 28. I was thinking, God is all, God is omnipresent, God is all. And God's also jealous. Jealous, God is jealous of me. Um, See, it's a, and this happens, you know, when you have pastors who don't know enough to explain figures of speech, things like that in the scripture then people get a misperception of what the Bible says, and then they react against a misperception. And something about that didn't, didn't feel right in my spirit, because I believe that God is love. And so what's her ultimate authority? Her feelings. Let's play feelings. We need to have that you know, booted up back there in the sound booth. So it's feelings. It didn't feel right in my spirit. And you see a lot of Christians see the, the ultimate problem with that, and we studied this before is in mysticism, is that the problem in many, many evangelical churches and in many, many Baptist churches is this sort of uh, subtle uh, mysticism that's there that ultimately how do you know it's true? You know, we, we have it in the hymn, He lives, He lives. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. No, you ask me how I know He lives. I know He lives because the Bible tells me so. Um, you know, that little song that kids sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? For the Bible tells me so. That's, that's it. It's because God has spoken, not because I have this feeling. That's not what makes it true. This is why... The denomination from which the Mormons get their largest number of converts are the Southern Baptists because of this subtle mysticism. And they'll appeal to them and say, if, if, if you want to know that it's true, that is Mormonism, you'll have the burning in your bosom. And all that's saying is you're going to feel it in your heart. It's going to resonate with your spirit, and that becomes the ultimate determiner of truth, not not does it conform to what the scripture says. That God is in all things. And so that's when the... the, the God is in all things. What's that? That's pantheism or maybe panentheism. More than doctrine uh, started to stir within me. Okay, now doctrine means teaching. What is she doing? It always amazes me how people who are against teaching are usually teaching against teaching when they're making these anti-doctrine statements. And I love this quote that uh, Eckhart has. Uh, this is one of my favorite quotes in uh, chapter 1, where he says, Man made God in his own image. The eternal, the infinite, and unnameable was reduced to a mental idol that you... 
Okay, man made God in his image. When did that happen historically? No, no. Those of you who've been here on Monday night for History of Doctrine, when did man make God in his own image? 19th century religious liberalism. This is when uh, your German, European liberals from <clears throat> Schleiermacher, Feuerbach, uh, Ritual, all of these liberal theologians basically recast God as just a, a you know, he's just a bigger human. He's just a bigger, bigger man. Had to believe in and worship as my God or our God. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the consciousness. What did he say? Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Did y'all catch that? That's in first hesitations. <laughs> Which the world appears, is seen. So you believe what happens to us at death when the body dies? I you don't, don't have a belief. I don't give it any thought. You don't. God... And the essence of all consciousness isn't something to believe. God is. Yes. God is. And God is a feeling experience, not a believing experience. Can I make the point that it's irrational any better than that? Belief involves thought, but this just is pure emotion. That's right. And if 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 that your religion is a believing experience, if God for you is still about a belief, then it's not truly God. No. That's what you're saying. Yes. But that's not all. She's entered the political arena by endorsing a candidate for president. The New Age teacher giving lessons on her website, Marianne Williamson, has... I went to high school with her. just thought you all want to know that. ...started an organization called the Peace Alliance to establish a U.S. Department of Peace. What can we do? Spread the word and tell others to open their eyes. Author Carrington Steele uncovers the truth in a new book, Don't Drink the Kool-Aid. Available at C.S. Steele online. Okay, that gives us enough of a framework there. Now we'll go into our study. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. Well, that just gives us a little test on how well we do with our critical critical thinking skills. Now, always remember, critical thinking skills doesn't mean that you're critical, nasty, mean-spirited towards people. It's, it means that you can think objectively and evaluate what you are hearing and understand uh, where it's coming from in terms of the absolutes of the Bible. Now, in the last several lessons, we've been going through 1 Kings chapter 8, and I've been emphasizing that this is a prayer that's Solomon's dedicatory prayer of the temple. And just to review very briefly, this prayer is built on out of Solomon's meditation, Solomon's understanding of the Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant. Everything that he says in this prayer comes directly out of those two covenants back in uh, the introductory part, chapter 8, verses uh, 14 down through 21. He talks about what God said in verse 18, But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. goes on to talk about God's promise that David wouldn't build a temple, but that his descendant would build, build the temple and... Uh, also, in verse 21, it relates back to the Ark of the Covenant, and that brings up the Mosaic Covenant. Then starting in verse 22, this is the, the prayer uh, proper when uh, he takes a little platform that was about three feet high, stands up on that, uh, raises his arms to God, then he kneels. We compared the account here with the account in First Chronicles. They each give a little different picture, but when you put it together, you see what was going on. And he, began, he addresses God as the one who keeps your covenant and mercy uh, with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Who are your servants in 1 Kings 8.23? 
And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above, on earth below, like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants. Who did God make the covenant with? Israel. Okay, your servants are Israel. Then skip down to verse 25. Uh, after he rehearses how he literally fulfilled the promise to David his father, Verse 25, therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, and uh, you have kept that promise and have allowed us to build this temple. Then from there he goes on to pray about uh, the nation and skip down to verse 30. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel. This may seem like an obvious question, but who are your people? The your refers to God and your people are Israel. Just I'm I gotta make a point, you'll hit it in the conclusion, but we gotta make this point. I don't want you to miss it. Many people do. Verse thirty three when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy, who's your people? Is Israel. Okay, and again verse thirty eight. Uh whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel. Again, your people are defined in context as Israel. You find this again in verse forty three, your people Israel. Verse forty four, whenever your people go out to battle against the enemy. And then later in uh verse uh fifty, <coughs> forgive your people. Again in 51, for they are your people. Verse 52, your people Israel. And at the end afterwards in his uh, uh, benediction, when he blesses the people, he says in verse 56, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel. The point is, all the way through this prayer, Solomon is addressing God for God's people, Israel. So the phrase your people or his people always refers to, uh, to Israel. Now, as we went through this, we saw that there are seven specific petitions that are made in that prayer and that these specific petitions all had to do with some statement that God had made in the Mosaic Law. The first petition had to do with uh, situation that was of injustice in um, in the courtroom. Well, when there is a one man sins against another, in verse uh, 31, calling upon God to be the ultimate determiner of justice. In verse 32, verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated by an enemy, cast out of the land, hear them and bring them back to the land. The land, of course, being the land that God promised. Uh, verse 37, when there's famine in the land, pestilence, blight, or mildew, locusts, or grasshoppers, that when your people pray, whatever prayer, whatever supplication has been made by anyone or by all your people, Israel, when each one knows the plague, uh, the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hand toward this temple, then here in heaven your dwelling place forgive, act, and give to everyone according to all his ways. Uh, that's verse 39. Then we come to the next petition in verse 41 concerning uh, grace and justice for the foreigner in verses 41 down through 43. And verse 44, when your people go out to battle, praying for victory, but when they fail and they sin against you, uh, verse 46, then when you uh, when they return to you, verse 48, with all their heart, with all their soul, in the land of their enemies who led them away captive, and pray to you toward the land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the, the temple which I have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, maintain their cause and forgive your people and bring them back to the land. I'm just reviewing this because of where we're going. All of this is part of his prayer. Now, we have to understand that context. Now, when he finished the prayers, I pointed out last time, Solomon blessed the assembly. What First Chronicles points out is that in here there is fire from heaven that consumes uh, the offering that he has made uh, that is, which is not mentioned in this particular <clears throat> in this particular chapter, and then he dedicates the the uh, temple when he offers the sacrifices in verse sixty two, and we read in verse sixty three, and Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings. Now that's key because a peace offering pictures the peace, the reconciliation, the fellowship between the nation Israel and God. And that as part of the peace offering, 
The people who brought the peace offering were also to eat of the uh, meat of the offering, and that would provide sustenance for them. So this is a major event that has occurred in Israel with the dedication of the temple, as is pointed out, I pointed out last time in verse uh, 65, that the people have come in this great assembly. They were, it's arguable that there were well over a million, maybe, maybe much more people in Jerusalem for this, for this event, uh, because of its, its nature. And they've come from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. And this really does describe the extent of the land under Solomon. And I have a map here for you to look at. And see right here, up here is Hamath. This is north. Here's Damascus in Syria. And this is Dan. Uh, Dan is at the northern border of the nation Israel today. If you're there at Tel Dan, you can look out if you stand by the uh, altar there that was uh, the altar of Jeroboam the first. You stand there, you can look out about a quarter of a mile, and you can see Lebanon. And if you look north about a mile, you can see Syria. That's the the northern boundary. So this is it's about another uh, hundred miles up to Damascus, and then here's Hamath way up to the north. So all this territory is being controlled. It's not. Uh, they haven't conquered all of it. Some of it's under tribute, but all of this territory from Hamath in the north all the way down to the river um, of Egypt, which is usually not considered to be the Nile by most scholars, but the division between the Sinai and Egypt. So the people are coming from this all of this territory to Jerusalem for this grand event. And at this time, they are going to have a 14-day celebration instead of the regular seven. It's the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is comparable to our October, maybe late September, depending on the year, um, near the autumnal equinox. So you've got probably 11 and a half, 12 hours of daylight every day. You'll know why that's important in a minute. So Solomon offers a sacrifice of peace offerings. And I talked about this a little bit last time, and afterwards... Uh, Jay Collins came up. Jay's a uh, veterinarian and ha- gave me some interesting insights, which I thought I should share with the congregation to give us a better understanding of what is going on here. I mean, we, it's easy for us to read past these uh, statements about sacrifice and just kind of go past it and not really grasp the dimension the size, it boggles the mind what's going on in this particular passage. And we're told that Solomon offered to the Lord 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. Now, this would stretch out over the two-year period, would not be done in one day. On the same day indicates that at the day they began the sacrifices, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord, so that the sacrifices aren't just taking place uh, around the great altar, the bronze altar, which was enormous. And normally they would have stations around the uh, altar so that there would be maybe five or ten different stations where they would be uh, sacrificing uh, the, the the lambs, the sheep, and the the goats, the oxen, and they had a um, they had a knowledge of the animal's nervous system at the time, where according to uh, recent studies, they knew exactly what nerve to cut, which would uh, basically anesthetize the animal, so there's no feeling of of, of pain, and you the animals were not bleeding, and they weren't making a lot of noise. And they wouldn't, uh, it's not a, there's no cruelty here. So there was a, uh, a graciousness about the way they uh, performed the sacrifice. But it takes place over a large area. Now, Jay gave me some, an email, sent me an email, gave me a lot of good, interesting information here. Those of you who don't know him, after he got out of A&M, he had to, um, he had two years of service with the uh, United States uh, Department of Agriculture where he served as a veterinary meat inspector up at the Swift uh, meat plant, packing plant up in, uh, 
up in Fort Worth, so he was, as the uh, meat inspector, he was there while they were uh, processing, which means uh, slaughtering all of these animals in the abattoir, that's a slaughterhouse, in the abattoir there in Fort Worth. I think abattoir sounds so much more elegant. According to Jay, he says the processing rate was 180 cattle an hour. Now, this is 50 years ago, so things uh, there's a little more mechanism today, but still there was a lot then. They would kill 180 cattle per hour, 200 calves per hour, 250 swine per hour, and 920 sheep per hour, all in one, uh, as he puts it, a disassembly line at the plant. Now, in light of his great experience with this, he took a look at the math and the logistics of sacrificing 120,000 sheep and 22,000 oxen over a period of two weeks. Now, in those 14 days, there would also be two, day, two Sabbath days when they would not be sacrificing. So you have two days off. They would usually sacrifice from just after sunup until sundown. So we'll just... Uh, for uh, ease of figuring, we'll just assume they had a 12-hour day of sacrificing. They weren't going around the clock. And they, in order to process 120,000 sheep in 12 12-hour days, it would be required that one would need to be killed, skinned, cut up, and distributed uh, every uh, in just under 14 seconds. Uh, what was it? Yeah, about one, one animal every four seconds, about just under four seconds per animal. You have 10,000 sheep, or 12, yeah, 10,000 sheep a day for 12 days. So you would also, if you do, if you're sacrificing 10,000 sheep per day in 12 hours, that would be 833 per hour. And 833 sheep per hour works out to be just under 14 sheep per minute, or one about every four seconds. Handling 22,000 cattle in a 12-day period would require processing 1,833 a day if they, uh, with, with uh, one day, over a 10-day period, taking the, the Sabbath off on that 12-day period, and that works out to about 152 an hour, right? Yeah, 22,000, 12 days, uh, works out to 152 cattle per hour or two and a half cattle per minute. So they had about 14,000 Levites working, this, work, working at the time, and part of those Levites were also part of the orchestra and playing the instruments and singing. I would have liked that job. If you've ever been around a slaughterhouse or butchered an animal to be doing it at this rate, it would be quite, quite a process. You would also have a group, you'd have to have a large pen area to keep all these animals. You would have to have a way of bringing them up in a very quick, efficient, orderly way to each of the altars. Each person working the altar would have to have two or three assistants in order to uh, hold the uh, sheep or the goat just the proper way so that he's uh, sacrificed according to the principle and the, where he would be held up his throat would be slit, and the blood would come out. And when Ra- I talked to Randy Price about this today, and when Randy was in Turkey a couple of months ago, he thought they were just going to do a sort of an enactment, and they actually s- sacrificed the goat. And he, he's got a video of it, but it was too large for him to email it today, or I would have shown it tonight, just to give you that full effect of realism. And they, uh, uh, so they would do this every... Uh, on the on the uh, sheep, that would would have been what did I say? Just under uh, every uh, about every four seconds. But if they have a number of stations, then it wouldn't have to be quite uh, quite that rapid. Now you also have other problems. For example, it's not a um, a modern system, so they don't have uh, knives as sharp as they do today. They would have to continue to sharpen uh, the instruments. Uh, they didn't have other things such as pressurized water 
water hoses, chain hoists, or electric motors. So it's a labor-intensive process. You'd also have to have another group that is constantly taking the knives and sharpening those and then passing those back to the priests. And then you have to deal with all of the uh, various uh, waste products, the blood, as well as everything that is inside of the animal. Now, before we get into that, I want to turn in your Bible to uh, Leviticus chapter 7. Leviticus chapter 7 gives the law of the, um, of the peace offering. Leviticus 7 verse 11. This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offering which he shall offer to the Lord. And it talks about each of the different kinds of animals that would be offered. If it's offered for a thanksgiving offering, verse 12, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving also unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and uh, unleavened wafers anointed with oil or cakes or blended flour mixed with oil. And let's let's skip down. The flesh, to verse 15, the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day it is offered. So each of these days with probably a million or more people there, there's a lot of meat to be consumed. So this would provide food for the people uh, in Jerusalem. God is multitasking. Uh, verse 16, but if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow or a voluntary offering, it shall be eaten the same day that he offers his sacrifice, but on the next day the remainder of it also may be eaten. Uh, let's just skip down to some of the descriptions there. Um, it talks about the, um, the fat of the animal is not to be, uh, or the fat and the kidneys and the liver um, is supposed to be also burned up on the altar, so there's a certain amount of the intestines and the gastrointestinal system that is taken care of uh, on the altar, but the rest has to be disposed of. Now, this is what I thought was pretty pretty interesting. Uh, <clears throat> the specific gravity of blood is about 1.06, which means that it weighs 1.06 times the weight of water. So a gallon of water weighs 8.3 gallons, and a gallon of blood would weigh a little over nine pounds. If a typical beef, typical cow, weighed a 1,000 pounds, it would have about 90 pounds or 10.8 gallons of blood. 22,000 oxen would be expected to shed at least 237,600 gallons of blood. Just think about that a little bit. Blood is not like water. It coagulates. It gets thick. It attracts flies. It's, it has a smell. One question I have is, how do they keep all those other animals calm as they're smelling the blood from the sacrifices? Uh, that's, that's just under 20,000 gallons of blood per day about 19,796 gallons to be precise, or 330 gallons of blood per minute. I should have brought in one of those large garbage cans to give us a little visual imagery there. If a typical sheep weighed 50 pounds, it would have about 4.5 pounds of blood. 120,000 sheep would be expected to shed at least 64,800 gallons of blood over that period of time. 10,000 sheep a day would shed about 5,400 gallons a day or about 90 gallons of blood per hour. Now, we don't know how anything about the Solomon's Temple because it was all destroyed in 586, no remains. But it, with the Herodian Temple, they had various channels and um, a, dr a drainage system that would take the blood and take it down to the Kidron Valley. So they had a way of getting water up on the Temple Mount that they could use to flush the system and to move this, this along. Now, all of this totals 302,400 gallons of blood plus everything else that's in the intestines. A railroad tank car holds about 25,000 gallons so the blood from the offering would fill about a dozen train cars, tankers. The rumen, which is the storage stomach or fermentation reservoir, holds about a gallon in sheep and 40 to 50 gallons in cattle. Now let's get a little picture of 
what we're talking about here. Here's the cow and his intestinal system. See, Jay did a great job. He even gave a PowerPoint presentation for this. <laughs> so <clears throat> this is the rumen. So all of this, there, there's stuff going on in all of the inside of this cattle, about 40 to 50 gallons worth. And it, this is all in addition to the blood. There would be at least another one-third of calculated rumen volume of food being digested plus waste in the rest of the intestinal tract. Calculating the volume of the intestinal contents plus the rumen being three-fourths full at slaughter, there would be about 120,000 gallons of sheep gastrointestinal contents plus at least another 1,320, no, it's at 1,320,000 gallons of cattle GI waste. This, you know, the thing that you should understand here is that a lot of thought went into this ahead of time, and they were organized and efficient in handling all of this. This just shows a tremendous organizational skill that, that, uh, that the Jews had that was part of the Mosaic Law. So uh, the dressing of the cattle, you usually get about 60% meat, whereas sheep or lambs average about 50%. So from that, 120,000 sheep would, would yield 3 million pounds of meat and about 120,000 gallons of gastrointestinal waste, and the 22,000 cattle would yield about 13 million pounds of beef plus about 1,320,000 gallons of gastrointestinal waste. And so the meat would all go to feed all the people who were in, uh, in Jerusalem for the feast, and the other all has to be dealt with. Either Some of it burned up on the, um, on the altar, and some of it not. Some of it just had to be disposed. So Jay adds a couple of interesting facts about the rumen. The rumen is also known as the fermentation vat or the paunch, and it forms the larger part of the first chamber in the digestive tract of ruminant animals. Ruminants include cattle, goats, sheep, camels, bison, deer, and antelope. It serves as the primary site for microbial fermentation of ingested feed, where the food is mixed with saliva and separates into layers of solid and liquid material. Solids clump together to form the cud. The cud is then regurgitated, chewed slowly to completely mix it with saliva and to break down the particle size. Plant fiber, especially cellulose, is primarily broken down by microbes, bacteria, protozoa, and fungi, so it can be utilized for nutrition. Protein and non-structural carbohydrates are also fermented. Now, the law of Moses allowed only the eating of animals that had split hooves and swallowed their food multiple times. They chewed the cud. This distinction between clean and unclean animals approximately falls according to whether the animal ruminates. Now, you've heard the term ruminate in English, and it means something else as well. The close relation to rumination is apparent in many English translations of the Bible, which use the word cud in an expanded sense to indicate food that is rechewed through rumination and again swallowed, and is also a word used for meditation that we constantly bring up what we've been taught by, by the, from the Word of God, and we ruminate on it. We chew it over again and again in our mind, and so that it strengthens our belief and reinforces the fact that Christianity is a thought system. Judaism, or the Old Testament was based on thinking. It's not based on the absence of belief, as we heard in our previous statement analysis of the new uh, religion of Oprah. So this is an emphasis here. Now, in conclusion, as we wrap up this study of 1 Kings chapter 8, I wanted to get a little further tonight. I want you to remember something that I kept emphasizing, and that is that throughout this prayer, uh, Solomon is referencing to your people, God's people, and your people, Israel. At the end, there is this sacrifice and then when it is over with, we read in 9.1, it comes to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared to him at Gideon. And in chapter 9 
of 1 Kings and in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we're going to get God's answer to this prayer. And when God answers the prayer, there will be a couple of surprises for you in how we understand God's answer to that prayer. So we'll just leave you on that note. And remembering that all of these sacrifices all are a picture ultimately of what Jesus Christ was to do on the cross. In his sacrifice, he provides the basis for peace between God and man and for that restoration of relationship that these sacrifices picture. They're horrible to think about all of this, the, the blood, the smell, all the things that went into this is a reminder of the horror of sin. And yet God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins and that what the Lord Jesus Christ went through on the cross is nothing compared to whatever revulsion you might feel over watching all of this, these sacrifices and the smells and everything else that goes along with it because that is a reminder of the horror of sin and it tells us about what the Lord Jesus Christ went through in order to pay the penalty for our sins and that we could have salvation simply by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him. That is the emphasis throughout Scripture is that salvation comes by faith alone in Christ alone. It is a thoughtful belief system. It's not irrational. It is understanding man's problem as a sinner, God's solution at the cross, and trusting or believing that Christ died for us. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're so thankful that we have your word to give us light and that we see light in the light of your word. It is your word that gives us truth. As we study these things, we are reminded that we live in the devil's world and that in the devil's world there are always false teachers, false messiahs, false promises. And yet we as believers need to be uh, trained by your word to think according to your word, to meditate on your word so that your word enables us to uh, think about what we hear, what the world system throws at us, that we may be accurate and that we may be uh, consistent with what you have revealed to us and that we may know the truth because, as Jesus said, it's only when you know the truth, that is your word, that we have true freedom. Father, we pray that you would help us as we think through these things and that God the Holy Spirit would use this in our spiritual growth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.